Testament in the Gospel or in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, chapter 5, where we start reading at verse 22 through chapter 6, verse 12. Our second passage is from the New Testament, Romans chapter 14, the verses 5 through 12. But first, we open the Word of God in Exodus 5 and start reading at verse 22. This is the Word of God. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to my people, uh, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. That's our first passage. We now turn to the, the epistle of Paul to the Romans, chapter 14. And we read to verses 5 through 12. Romans 14, starting at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day <clears throat> observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. 
For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So far the reading of God's holy word. Let us respond by turning to Psalm 54 and sing the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Psalm 54, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3 in response to the reading of God's word. on the third commandment and what we confess regarding it in Lord's Day 36 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 36, page 653 in the back of our books of praise. In Lord's Day 36, we echo the Word of God regarding the third commandment. And first of all, ask the question, what is required? in the third commandment. We are not to blaspheme or to abuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor to share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. Rather, we must use the holy name of God only with fear and reverence so that we may rightly confess him call upon him, and praise him in all our words and works. Is the blaspheming of God's name by swearing and cursing such a grievous sin that God is angry also with those who do not prevent and forbid it as much as they can? Certainly, for no sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than the blaspheming of his name. That is why he commanded it to be punished with death. <clears throat> Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are not allowed to swear. In a few and simple words, brothers and sisters, this is what most people think the third commandment is all about. Don't swear. Don't use the name of God so lightly the way you meet in the street, at work, at school, yes, even in the houses sometimes, including expletives like gee or gosh or geez, darn, and the like, even OMG in our text messaging. Yet, brothers and sisters, 
It's even somewhat dangerous to restrict the third commandment to those first few words of our Heidelberg Catechism. We are not to blaspheme or to abuse the name of God by cursing. As if the third commandment only forbids the use of profane or abusive language. That's not all by far. Therefore, we should not look at the people of the world this afternoon in the sense of, boy, there sure is a lot of swearing and cursing going on nowadays. The third commandment, beloved, is first of all a commandment for God's people. It is the third word of the covenant. It is a word which is closely related to the words, I am the Lord, your God, your Deliverer, your Redeemer, your Savior. In that work of redemption, I have made my name known to you. Treat that name as precious. Believe in that name. Then we must recall what we have seen so far in the preceding commandments, namely, the Lord, our God, is the only God, and He is God alone. He has revealed to us how we may live with Him in the most intimate communion. He delivered us, however, not only for a life in the pure communion in the second commandment, but also unto a life of the fullest communion. Well, that's the word. What the word of the covenant reveals to be the extent of the third commandment. So I proclaim to you, in the third commandment, the Lord teaches us the full communion in His name. And then we see two things. First of all, in His name, His life is revealed fully. And secondly, in His name, our life is involved fully. So that's how I would like to summarize the message of this afternoon. In the third commandment, the Lord teaches us the full communion in His name. We see in His name, His life is revealed fully. And secondly, in His name, our life is involved fully. So first of all, in His name, His life is revealed fully. So what actually does a name mean, brothers and sisters? Do we look at it in the way Shakespeare did when he asked, what's in a name? That in order to explain what he meant, he added, if we would give a different name to the flower we now call rose, would it not smell just as nicely? Indeed, our names seem to be just labels for the purpose of distinction. For some, there is not much difference between having a name or being a number. However, that's making it too simplistic. A name has more meaning than that. My name is the symbol of my interaction among people. Only when you are alone on an island, you don't need a name. Our name has a history. It carries a reputation. 
It denotes a position. That's why business people want to have the name of their business stand out for its connotations, quality, service, expertise, integrity, etc. They want to have a good name in the community. Well, in the Bible, beloved, names say a lot more than just reputation. Already the giving of names is an expression of authority and superiority. Adam was superior to the animals and so gave them their names. When parents named their children, they added quite some history to it already. For example, Samuel, that is, God hears. The Lord heard the prayers of Hannah to receive a son whom she called Samuel. God hears. It happened in the naming of the youngest son of Jacob and Rachel that each parent judged that history differently. Ben-Oni, son of my shame, Rachel said. Benjamin, son of my right hand, Jacob judged. Giving a name was also a matter of appointment, of relationship, of position. Solomon was going to be called Jadidjah, the Lord's beloved. And when Abraham's life was going to be changed completely, also his name had to be adjusted. Abraham. While Jacob's position and reputation is greatly changed from Jacob, deceiver, to Israel, man of God. In short, in the Scriptures, the name itself denotes who the person is. Yes, even that he is someone and is actively living in that name. Well, in this way, brothers and sisters, we should also approach the name of God. If God had kept himself hidden in the inner glory of his inapproachable light, his name would have been unknown to us. Then we could not name him either. No, God has proclaimed his name over the earth. He has revealed himself as the God of the whole world. In that way, God's name has become the symbol of the communion he has with the world. You see, generally speaking, people have difficulty maintaining communion with someone they cannot see. Someone who does not walk up to you and introduces himself to you, with whom you speak and look him in the eyes. The heathen solved that problem by making an image of their gods so that they could place them before themselves. The Bible ridicules that way by saying that such gods cannot see nor hear. The Lord also forbade his people explicitly to seek communion with him in that way. Well, beloved, if you may not seek contact and communion with God by making him visible in one way or another, how else should you do it? Then the Lord says, I made it possible by revealing my name. 
by manifesting myself in my work and attaching my name to it. Isn't that the way we make acquaintance too? You mention your name and you introduce yourself to someone by telling some things about yourself. In order to develop a relationship, communion of sorts, that's essential for it. That as the relationship develops, deepens, you suggest to the other to call you by your name, your nickname, as expression of greater confidentiality. Well, that's how the God of heaven and earth gathered a circle of confidants, of intimates around himself, whom he told to call him by his name. That's how he offered his friendship to them. He wants to be intimate with them, practice deeper communion with them. That's how the name of God was introduced, beloved, and that's how we must view it too. Then you understand as well why he also wants to protect that name. For God's name is God himself. God's name, that means I am God. I have come to the earth as such, as the God of heaven and earth, of angels and men, of the depths of the sea, and of the cattle on a thousand hills, the God of crops and harvests, of banks and houses, of mountains and meadows. I am God, and I have come in the fullness of power of majesty, of glory, of holiness, of grace. The God who has declared in Jesus Christ, the world is mine, and mine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now, in order to reveal that work and claim the glory of his name for it, God made himself known by various names. El Shaddai, God, the Almighty One in His work of creation. El Adonai, God, the Lord of the host of angels who proclaim Him as holy, holy, holy is His name. Or Yahweh, God of the covenant, the faithful one, your Redeemer, Savior, the name also which he used as he introduced himself to his people, to Moses at first repeatedly and then at Mount Sinai again. I am the Lord, your God. You see, beloved, and in this name, in this being the Redeemer, Savior, the Lord has revealed himself more fully in the only name given under heaven by which we may be saved, Jesus Christ. In that name, the Lord has come to his people in the wilderness already, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, and the rock was Christ. But especially when he came to dwell among them in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. I have revealed your name, the Lord Jesus says in John 17, verse 6. Thus in the name Jesus, Joshua, 
we find the source of our communion with God. The Lord saves in order to unite himself eternally with his people. Therefore, beloved, when we say that the third commandment speaks about the name of God in the covenant, we say the matters of life in the covenant are matters of God, matters that God and we have increasingly in common. First as the Lord and his people, then as father and his children, then as bridegroom and bride, as husband and wife. It is a life of full communion in his name. We have life in his name, says John. I'll proclaim your name to my brothers, David says in Psalm 22. And the Lord Jesus fulfilled this word to keep us in God's name to preserve this full communion by the preaching of the gospel. That's why, brothers and sisters, we come together on the Sundays in our worship services, even now, virtually, through technology, we call upon the name of the Lord together that we may be saved. That's calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Father gave him that name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Isn't that wonderful, beloved? Everything revolves around his name in heaven and on earth. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. The children, too, are baptized into the name, singular, the name of the triune God upon the command of Christ. They belong to him as well and should learn to know him, to praise him as they indeed can do among us. That we should all trust in him his name is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. We may dwell in it and have communion with him, seek refuge in it, be as safe in it as in a bomb shelter. Whatever the dangers be in this hostile world, whatever the powers of darkness, death and hell may be, in the name of God, we have the guarantee of safety, of protection, of life. That first. And then in his name, our life is involved fully. But the next question we have to answer, beloved, is, what does that mean exactly? Misuse the name. Using in vain, literally. In the scriptures, vain denotes that which is wrong, or evil, or dead, or foolish. It's the opposite of that which is good, alive, wise. Vain in the Bible is the word for a life without God, without Savior. That life is empty, worthless. 
and without any real happiness. The idols, for example, are vain. They cannot see, nor move, nor can they be active. They are vain, dead. Idolatry, as we have seen, creates a false feeling of safety and a vain hope. Now, the Lord has said, I have delivered you from death to life. Or, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 5, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Someone who uses his name in vain, however, makes a connection between him and the evil, between God and something sinful, between life and death, between heaven and hell. That's the principle of what's forbidden here for our whole life. In contrast to this, Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's how you show that you are not dead, but alive. Whatever you do. So in the third commandment, the Lord says, watch out that you don't use my name in connection with something that is in reality opposed to me. Don't try to attach my name to something that is foreign to me, hostile to me. Now, to illustrate this, we may think of King Saul, who pretended to honor God's name with the spoil he took of the Amalekites, while the Lord had put a ban on it. 1 Samuel 15. Also, of what Shimei did when David fled for Absalom. And Shimei used the name of Yahweh to pronounce a curse upon David, the anointed of the Lord. 2 Samuel 16. Sennacherib too declared to King Hezekiah, The Lord said to me, Go up against the land and destroy it. The Lord did not hold them guiltless who so misused his name, as these examples show us clearly. Or think of the story which is found in Jeremiah 29 about the two false prophets, a certain Ahab and Zedekiah. They prophesied among the exiles in the name of the Lord that his people would soon return to Canaan. They did so to boost their own popularity, their own name, so to speak, while using the name of Yahweh for it. They were living, however, according to their own passions and practicing evil among God's people, even committing adultery with the wives, plural, of their neighbors. Well, to be living such a lie, they attached the name of the Lord. The Lord then did not hold them guiltless, but delivered them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he slayed them before the eyes of the exiles. He roasted them in the fire. Jeremiah 29, verse 22. 
Now, in the covenant between the Lord and his people, beloved, the name of the Lord is the basis of his life with his people. By way of an oath and a promise, the Lord attached his name to this covenant relationship. And the people, too, express that basis when they swear an oath of allegiance in the covenant as Israel did at Mount Sinai. All that the Lord has spoken we will do, they swore. The Lord our God we shall serve and we shall obey his voice. Of that covenant making, the Ten Commandments are the official documents, the Constitution. Using the name of God in that oath, they committed themselves wholeheartedly to his covenant, to an undivided life in communion with him. Then that life must be lived in communion indeed, according to his will. Well, in line with this commandment to a life in communion with the Lord through Jesus Christ, as we vow to pursue when we make public profession of our faith, brothers and sisters, I always spoke about this with my pre-confession students as well. Then we often read Luke 14, verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it. For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. It takes a lot to be a Christian, to bear the name of Christ to attach the name of the Lord to your, to your life by oath. Then you submit yourself to him fully. Then there are no compromises or middle-of-the-road ways or neutral areas. Then there must be an interest and attention for one thing, a life with God in Jesus Christ, the King of the kingdom of heaven, that requires all our time and talents. For the work of the Lord in this world is glorious work to which he has attached his name. In that work, Christ is our master. He is seated on his throne in my life. As Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me then he is central in our time, in our service, in our stewardship, in our entertainment. However, if then our life shows something different, when our practice in speaking or listening or watching or drinking or driving or reading or looking after my room, my belongings, conflicts with that work, then we use his name in vain. Then we connect his name to a lifestyle which is unchristian. You know, we can curse with our mouths, beloved, 
but also with our life. If our life displays the emptiness of bread and games, or if it is occupied with empty shows and vain videos, then that's contrary to a life in the Lord. Swearing and cursing is wicked indeed, but attaching the holy name of God to a life that is worldly or to a lifestyle that is godless, a lifestyle that is from which it does not show that we live for God, that's worse. He will not hold that guiltless. It's going to affect our life, our faith, and our future. Now, directly related to this, brothers and sisters, is also the issue of the oath which necessitated the inclusion of a Lord's Day 37 in the Heidelberg Catechism, as we will see next week. But there was a clear connection with what we just saw. The views of the Anabaptists about the swearing of an oath, about the courts, the governments, etc., are evidence that they had not shaken the Roman ideas about the distinction between nature and grace. Nature and grace, natural life and spiritual life, those were two different things, they said. The governments, the courts, marriage were matters belonging to the natural life. They, as converted believers, on the other hand, belonged to the spiritual realm. Thus, they despised military service. They refused to use God's name in an oath before a worldly judge. Then the Reformers said to them as well, this is a denial of our life in communion with God. For an oath is a calling upon the name of the Lord in whose sight we stand, before whose throne we walk, in whose name we live. We are always living in the climate of the oath. That's how Christ lived before the Father and swore an oath at the appropriate moment. That's how we must live with one another too. We are united with God, beloved, from our first baby cry to our last deathbed sigh. Of everything we do, the Word says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. In Romans 14, 2, the apostle works out that point that we live to the honor of the Lord. Eat and drink to the honor of the Lord. Yes, that in life and death we are the Lord's. The most common things take place with God as our witness. Our whole life is holy in the Lord. We cannot exclude one aspect of our life from God. That's our spiritual worship, our service in the Spirit, our service according to His Word. Hence, Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell richly in your life. Then you will confess His name 
in all your life. For you are his viceroy again, a Christian who shares in his anointing. Then you confess his name in the keeping of your oath at the baptismal font in your raising of the children, in your faithful adherence to your marriage vows, in the execution of your office as office-bearer as well, you seek the honor of the God who saves, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Easy? Not at all. Good thing we don't just have the commandment to live in full communion with God in His name. We also have our prayer, the petition, in which we practice the communion, saying, Father, hallowed be your name. Christ taught us that petition. The Father helps us in this life, and the Spirit renews us for such a life. Indeed, are we not baptized into the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for that purpose? Amen. Let us all rise and sing in response from hymn 23, the stanzas 4, 5, and 6.